my own father uh, taught me many valuable lessons. Uh, one in particular that um, comes from, I think, probably his father, or probably even the father above that father, is, is this reality that a problem well-defined is half-solved. So in other words, all right, if we can clearly define the nature of a problem, we're halfway towards finding, ultimately, the solution to that problem. Meaning, we've got to really clearly define what it is that our problem is. And undoubtedly, let me just go ahead and say, the problem of evil, or often been termed the problem of evil and suffering, is one of the greatest challenges raised against the Christian faith. Okay? So I'm going to read this text, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Notice what the text says. Far be it from you, he's speaking about God, to do such a thing. Far be it from you, God, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare. They eventually fare out as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. Do what is just. So... If undoubtedly the problem of evil is one of the greatest challenges raised against the Christian faith, or really against really any belief system, okay? But before we ask, all right, why would God allow evil, or how does a Christian make sense of evil, we have to make sure we first clearly define evil. Now, more ink has been spilled around the subject of the problem of evil than anything else as it relates to philosophical relationship to Christianity, okay? So you'll see this stat behind it. Between 1960 and 1990, there's more than 4,200 publications in the English language alone as it relates to the problem of evil, okay? But before, again, we ask, why does God allow evil? Or how does Christian make sense of the evil, square ourselves with the brokenness? We have to really clearly define evil, Okay? So not long ago, I'll give you a quick story. Um, this is a year, about a year ago. I teach uh, apologetics. I have now for the last uh, two years uh, to high school students. And so I've always loved apologetics um, I, even, ever since I came to know Christ. But I was in a context where uh, I overheard a lady next to me talking about the problem of suffering and evil. And the lady said this out loud. She said, I think that good and evil are equal but opposing forces. Now, when I heard that, I had to jump in, all right? I was trying to stay really, really out of the conversation as much as possible, but I heard her say they're equal but opposing forces. And so as soon as I heard this, I found a way to jump in, and I said, it seems to me that you have given a very faulty view of evil. Good and evil are not two equal opposing forces. This is not good versus evil. What do you mean? Evil is a corruption of good. So you can have good without evil, but you cannot have evil unless you first have a standard of good that can be corrupted. So these are not equal forces. They're not opposing with the same amount of power. So C.S. Lewis, uh, famous, famous, obviously, Christian, in 1959, he wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and he was a former atheist himself. He said this quote, he said, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But he said, But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call, watch this, a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Notice that. What is he saying? Justice and injustice are not equal and opposite forces. Okay? Injustice 
is parasitic upon the standard of justice. So let's say it this way. You cannot call a line crooked unless you first have some standard of a straight line. Consider another example. Let's take truth and lies. This is one we know in our culture. All right, so what is a truth? A truth is when a belief matches up with reality. So in a sense, truth is telling it like it is. What is a lie? A lie is when what? When you tell something that intentionally does not match up with reality. It is intentionally saying something that doesn't tell it like it is. So watch this. You can have truth of which no one ever tells a lie, but you cannot tell a lie unless there's first truth. Lies are a corruption of truth. They're not the opposite equal force of truth. So evil is a corruption of that which is good. This is evident in the broken world around us, right? Divorce is what? A broken marriage. All right? Addiction. Racism. Let's talk about racism because we're in in, in our our month right now. Racism results from what? Broken relationships where we fail to recognize intrinsically the imago dei in all diversity, all ethnicities. What is addiction? Addiction results from taking something meant for good, food, technology, medicine, sex, and corrupting it for something evil. Simply put, evil is when things are not the way they're supposed to be. Or they are the way they're not supposed to be. So if we understand it this way, then watch this. Evil already assumes that there is a way that the world is in fact supposed to be. So raising the problem of evil actually assumes and implies that there is a way of the world that it's supposed to function. But here's the point. Because there's so many different ways we can go with this conversation tonight. I have advertised this as being our response to an atheistic worldview. And that's where I want to spend my time. So atheism, watch this, cannot account for design, cannot account for purpose, right? Or that the claim that the world is supposed to be a certain way. Why? Because the reason is for atheism, the world just is. The world popped into existence from nothing and through time and through chance and through the laws of physics, the world has now arranged itself in the way that you and I see it today. So ironically, watch this. If an atheist complains about the problem of evil, they have to assume a theistic worldview to do it. So they can't be atheistic anymore. So you have to not bring up evil if you're an atheist. The moment you bring up evil, you're already assuming a theistic worldview. That this world is not the way it should be. So let's talk about the Eastern religions. I was on a Zoom call today with people who do all kinds of ministry. They're, in fact, distributing one million Bibles in Iran in the next three years. And I praise God, catch this. I've got a contact now who has been to Pakistan over 20 times himself and is going to help us at least with about the first thousand Bibles into the regions that we're doing our outreaches right now. So this is a huge answered prayer in the midst of maybe some unanswered prayers in my life. This was an awesome answered prayer today. And so, uh, amazing. But when you think of Hinduism, Hinduism is pantheism. That's all it is. So pantheists can't consistently raise the problem of evil. And the reason is because with pantheism, distinctions are artificial. So for a pantheist, there's no real distinction between mind and matter. There's no distinction between yesterday and today. There's no distinction between good and evil. So according to pantheism or Hinduism, 
you can't have a problem of evil because evil doesn't exist. Evil is an illusion. So properly understood, the existence of evil is one good reason to believe that there is a standard of good. And watch this. If there is a standard of good, the best explanation of that is that there is a God. Now, this doesn't explain why God allows evil. That's where we're going to jump in a little bit. We'll get to that. But it's critical to realize, and I want you to see this from the outset. When we properly understand and define evil, that's why I started with defining it. When we understand the nature of evil, it's actually one of the greatest reasons to believe that God really actually exists. Now, let's talk about this issue of what we call falsehood. All right, so what if I told you that I wanted you to meet my brother who is an only child? I would like for you to meet my brother who is an only child. My guess is you'd stop. And you go, um, if you have a brother, then by definition, he can't be an only child. And if someone's an only child, then that person does not have a brother. The idea of a brother who is an only child is impossible. Now watch this. Some people make the same kind of argument for the existence of God. Meaning, this is what they do. When we look at certain attributes of God, that God is all good... God is all-powerful. Those two words, by the way, are omnibenevolent and omnipotent or omnipotent. Okay, God is all-good and that God is all-powerful. And then what they do is they look at the presence of evil. And some people say, well, the existence of God, Craig, is just as absurd and crazy and logically contradictory as a brother who is an only child. In fact, what I would like to do formally is I would like to describe. Let's walk through the premises that... This argument takes on. And we're going to dissect it and kind of break it down. So in this argument, against the existence of God because of the presence of evil, there are basically three premises that are made. Here's the first premise people make. They think, if God, number one, is all-powerful, if God is all-powerful, He, God, could stop evil. If God's all-powerful, he could stop evil. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe God is all-powerful? Just show of hands, okay? Awesome. I figured we would get that kind of response on premise number one. Let's look at the second premise. If God is all-good, this is omnibenevolent. So if God's all-powerful, he could stop evil. If God is all-good, he would stop evil. He would would cause it to dissipate, dry up. Now, how many of you believe, show of hands again, you think God is all good? God is omnibenevolent. He's all good. Okay, third premise. Evil exists. How many of you think evil acts really happen in the earth? They're not an illusion. Like, there's real evil. All right. So if these three premises are true, what's the conclusion? If God is all-powerful, he could stop evil. If God is all-good, he would stop evil. Evil exists. Then what is the conclusion? God does not exist. And this is the argument that's, again, touted and communicated by, not thousands, millions. Maybe if billions. All right. So if these three promises are true, 
I will agree with anybody in the room or any atheist. This is the conclusion that would follow. And some people will see this just as straightforward and as powerful of excluding the idea of God as the idea of a brother who is an only child. So if we want to show that this conclusion doesn't follow, that this does not ultimately disprove God, what do we have to do? We have to what? We have to prove one of these three is false. We have to do that. That's what we set out to do. If we're going to say this does not disprove God, we've got to look at one, two, and three and say, okay, let's set out to prove that one of these is not true. All right. So Eastern, actually, most all Eastern religions, like, again, Buddhism, Hinduism, will actually typically begin with a third premise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my way backwards, okay? So let's just see if we can prove one of them wrong, all right? See if there's anything promising here. All right. So what would a pantheist, what would a Hindu say about the third premise? Well, I told you a minute ago, pantheists don't believe in good or evil, so they would deny that premise altogether. That's mostly where Eastern religions start. So in pantheism, all is one, so distinctions between good and evil are actually artificial. We can speak of them, but they're illusions. So they actually, Hindus, actually solve the problem of evil. You know how they do that? By saying there's no such thing as evil. Now, logically speaking, does that get us out of the problem of evil? I will, conf- I will confirm it does, yes. It gets us out of it. But let me ask you a question. <clears throat> is that a meaningful way to solve the problem of evil just by saying that it's not a problem at all? Let me, let me ask it another way. Does that resonate in your heart? When you look at the world and your experience, is it fitting for you to say evil just doesn't exist? Anyone? That's not fitting for my experience. When I look at history... And I look at my life, it sure seems to me that the reality of evil acts are about as real as anything I've ever experienced. So as Christians, and Christians are what? As Seth said, committed to following where reason leads, getting rid of evil and saying it doesn't exist seems to be like a really too high of a price to actually pay. So we've got to now look at the other two premises and see if either of these might not be true. So let's consider number one. If God is all-powerful... He could stop evil. All right. Now, all of you agree, you raised your hands, God's all-powerful, right? But let me ask you a more basic question. What do we mean when we say God is omnipotent? What do we mean when we say God can do anything? Or let me ask you this way. Do you think God can do anything we can conceive of? So could God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it? So, So people raise that question against Christianity, right? So, and what they say is that if he can make a rock so big and he can't move it, then he limits himself. And if he can't make a rock so big that he can't move it, then he is limited. Therefore, God's not all-powerful. And these are ways to trick us in our logic, in our thinking, okay? But, but let's explore this. All right, so <clears throat> I actually brought with me a paperclip, all right? So everybody knows what a paperclip is, all right? So I'm going to start with Toby, all right, to buy it. Toby, I, will, I don't have a million dollars, but I do have a thousand dollars. I will give you a thousand dollars if you can simply take this paperclip and bend it into a square circle. Would you try that? Thousand dollars, you got to bend it into a square circle. Not possible? Not to bend it into a square circle? 
You sure? You don't think so? So if you had more strength, you think, maybe? Maybe you just don't have enough power? We'll, 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 maybe we'll, we'll just take the power. Okay, so let's get somebody a little bit stronger, okay? So maybe we don't have enough power. Um, <clears throat> who's a, Tim, you're a strong man. Tim's been working out. I know he has. He, we didn't have the conversation last All right, so Tim, if we add some power to the mix, okay? And can you bend this paperclip into a square circle? You can't. Even with your might? All right, why not? Why can't you? Well, Toby already alluded to it. We added more power to the mix. We went from female to a male, and you still say it's not possible. All right, let me ask you a question. Could the strongest person on the planet make this paperclip into a square circle? No. You ready? Could God make this paperclip into a square circle? No. No, he could not. By definition, a circle has no points, and if it has any points, it's not a circle. And by definition, a square has four points, and if it has more or less, it's not a square. So a square circle, like Toby said, cannot exist. Even God can't make it. Wait a minute, Pastor Craig is limiting God's power. No, no, no. What do we mean when we say God is all-powerful? we got to clearly define that. What does it mean to say God is omnipotent? Well, theologians have wrestled with this for 2,000 years. We mean, ready? God can do everything that can be done. If power can do something, then God can do it. But power alone, doesn't matter how much power you have, there cannot be a square circle. So it is biblically accurate for us to say there are some things God can't do. Now hear me, that is not a limitation upon God. It is a recognition that some things within themselves are impossible and cannot actually be. So, so let's think of it this way. How many of you have ever told a lie? You've ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. All right, cool. <clears throat> Can God tell a lie? Well, Hebrews says God cannot lie. So think about that. Does that mean you can do something that God cannot do? No, seriously, seriously. Does that mean you have more power than God? You're more powerful than God? No, what is a lie? It's not a strength, it's a weakness. It's an imperfection. So God cannot lie, not because God lacks power, but because God is morally perfect. So when we say God is all-powerful... We don't mean God can do anything we can conceive of. We don't mean God can do whatever God wants to do. We mean God can do everything that power can do that is consistent with his moral nature. And if it is inconsistent with his moral nature, it doesn't matter how much power is present. But here's the key that this whole problem of suffering, this challenge misses. Even God cannot make a world with beings who are genuinely free and then him force us to always do what is good. Because if God forces us to always do what is good, we are not what? We're not free. And if we're truly free, then God is not doing what? He's not forcing us to always do what is good. So yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God can and he will stop evil. But logically speaking... 
God can no more make a world with genuine free will where humans actually make meaningful choices and then turn around and force us to always choose what is good. So number one is actually not true. It's not true. So let's look at the second premise. If God is all good, he would stop evil. Well, think about your life for a second. So when you see suffering and you see evil, um, kid drowns, eight-year-old girl sold into sex trafficking, if you had the power, wouldn't you step in and stop it? Of course you would. Now, every day, some evil happens in the earth, and God doesn't stop it. Does that make you better than God? Well, that's how the argument goes. So let's ask, just real quick, off the top of your head. Is there any reason why God might allow suffering and evil? How many of you think there could be any reason at all why God might allow suffering and evil? Maybe God has some reasons for the evil and suffering. Okay, let me ask you a follow-up question. If God has reasons, let me ask you this, should we ever expect to know all of God's reasons? Now, let me think about it for a minute. So, so if I told you, um, <clears throat> hey, friends, there's an elephant in this room. How quickly could you determine whether that statement is true or false? Pretty quickly, couldn't you? You walk, you look around, by looking around, up. Now, what if I said, um, there is a flea in this room? And Lee said, oh, no, 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 I can't see one. That's a lie. It's not true. You're wrong. Nah, somebody would say, put on the brakes for a minute. You could, you could see an elephant instantly. We'd be able to instantly see an elephant because of its size. But a flea would take a whole lot more searching, right? You'd, you'd expect to be able to see a flea not just by looking around, but actually searching. So if God is all-powerful, and if God is eternal, and if God is so unlike us, he sees the past, and he sees the present and the future, and he sees how every decision we make affects other people and affects the people around us, should we honestly expect to know why every time God allows suffering and evil? It would take a little more searching. So, so if we went around the room... And I just asked you, could any of you in the room think of uh, times where you have seen suffering and evil and something good came from it? Can anybody think of something good? How many of you think you raise your hand? You can answer that. You can say, yeah, I I think of something good that's come out of suffering. Okay. So let me tell you a story. A man who, again, was in my life, previous season of life, who was a brilliant guy, just literal genius. Uh, Didn't care at all about God, only cared about money. Uh, making more money, success, fame, notoriety, worth, popularity. And no matter what kind of conversations I had with this specific individual, uh, we didn't get anywhere far in our conversation. And so I never forget, um, he gave me a call one day and I answered the phone and I had not talked to him in a long extended period of time and I was a little bit shocked and he said to me, hey, how do you know? He said, you, you teach apologetics, right? And I said, yeah. He said, how do you know that God exists? He said, like, where do you even begin on the search of the existence of God? And for me, again, I'm stunned at him calling me, right? And he began to tell me that one of his best friends, the wife of the best friend, ended up being in a really, really terrible accident, car accident, 
and it, it awakened him in that moment to his own sense of mortality and shook him up. And he's now essentially going through life and not ever thinking about God. And some little area of suffering shook him up and made him think about eternal questions in a way that he hadn't ever thought of those questions before. So, so if there really is eternal life and this life is about knowing God, can you see maybe how God, because he's good, would not allow, or excuse me, would allow, not cause. He would allow, not cause, but allow something like that to happen. Because maybe God is good and he understands the depth of our depravity and he understands how ultimately divided and distracted we are. Maybe God allows some evil to actually draw us to him. Maybe God has a bigger plan. So C.S. Lewis, we'll go back to our man. C.S. Lewis, this is what he said. He said, God whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. He said, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. So what was he saying? He was saying because God is good, he can use even our pain, he can use even our suffering and the evil in the world, ultimately turn it towards good and draw us to rely on and trust him more. Now, as we continue in this conversation, I told you at the beginning, most atheists are quite candid about saying that ultimately what leads to their unbelief, and many of them actually grew up as Christians, what has led to their unbelief was the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And so it was really, normally, it's a philosophical problem rather than a biblical problem or historical problem that eventually leads to people's ultimate unbelief in atheism. And certainly the problem of suffering, I think, is the most powerful. I think it's the most powerful objection to the existence of God. I do. The issue of suffering. So whether suffering in the world is due to natural disasters or man's own evil towards man, I think you have to admit, given the depth and the extent of the suffering in the world, it is hard for a lot of people to believe in God. Because the suffering in the world certainly seems to be evidence against God's existence. So what have we done? First of all, I think we have to, and we've already begun this, differentiate between the intellectual problem of suffering and then what we call the emotional problem of suffering. So I'm going to show you a quick graphic because I think this might help us, okay? So when we talk about the problem of evil and suffering, all right, the intellectual problem of suffering concerns whether we think it's plausible to think that God and the suffering can, God and suffering can coexist, okay? So we've already touched, I just spent the last 20, 22 minutes hitting the logical version. What is the rational account of the compatibility of God and suffering? But then on the other side is the emotional problem of suffering. And this concerns people's dislike of a God who would permit terrible suffering. And I want you to understand something because it's so important. If we don't keep the two versions of the problem distinct, right? Because the, watch this, the answer to the intellectual problem is always going to appear very dry and uncaring to the person who's actually suffering emotionally, right? On the other hand, the answer to the emotional problem is going to appear very superficial and unsatisfactory to someone who's contemplating it purely as a philosophical question. So when you're actually talking to somebody, you're going to have to ask a couple questions to actually see which part of the problem they're in. Are they in the intellectual problem of evil and suffering? Or are they in the emotional problem 
of evil and suffering. I will say from, from my experience as a pastor, I'm convinced that for most people, the terrible suffering in the world is not an intellectual problem at all. It's a very deeply emotional problem. And I think most people's unbelief is born not out of refuting Christ, but rather simply out of rejection. They, they just don't like a God who would permit others to suffer terribly. And they want nothing to do with him. They don't like the idea. But in order to support that claim, that the problem of suffering is also a, really an emotional problem, we have to examine in detail the intellectual problem. Okay, So in discussing the intellectual problem, which we began doing, it's important that we keep in mind, and this is key, I want you to hear me, who has the burden of proof here? Okay, so watch this. Tonight, we're considering an argument for atheism. So if we did a different night, we could talk about arguments for the existence of God. And so Christians in that moment have the burden to bring and bear the proof. But now it's the atheist turn. So this problem of suffering is now put on the atheist to come up and bear the burden of bringing proof of why evil and suffering disproves God. It's not the burden of the Christian to come up with proof in its refutation. So let me explain this. The atheist now has to shoulder the burden of proof to give us ultimately the argument that leads to the conclusion, okay, therefore God does not exist. So what happens is often believers allow unbelievers to shift the burden of proof Onto the believer's shoulders. So the atheist says something like this. Give me some good explanation for why God permits all the suffering in the world. And then they just sit back and play the skeptic at any possible explanation you might offer. And then the atheist winds up having to prove nothing. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to come up with any burden of proof. They don't have to logically think. They just simply have to ask questions. They have to be skeptical. Okay? And that is, my friends, intellectually dishonest. So if the atheist is claiming that suffering in the world somehow disproves God, then that atheist also has to bear the burden, and this is key, of actually proving that. So you can't allow an atheist to shirk his or her intellectual responsibilities by shifting the burden onto the believer. So if someone's claiming that the coexistence of God and evil in the world is problematic, then they have, it's up to them to give the argument and support the premises. And so now it's our turn as Christians to play the skeptic and to question whether the atheist has given us good enough arguments to show that God can't have a good reason for allowing suffering in the world. You see the difference? Now, the intellectual problem of suffering comes in two versions. We've talked about the logical. All right? The, the, the logical version. It's logically impossible. We have show, I think we've showed that it's not logically impossible. The evidential version is harder because it tries to show that the coexistence of God and suffering is highly improbable. So before you start talking to an unbeliever about the problem of suffering, I, you can imagine I had my high school students this year engage this, this in their debates. And I, I'll, I'll just be honest with you, it was a train wreck. Uh, I was, had real high hopes. Uh, <clears throat> it was a train wreck. And it was a train wreck because we got to this point of, of, of recognizing, okay, when you're talking to an unbeliever, you're going to have to ask enough questions. Um, are you saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, 
that it's impossible that God and suffering in the world can't coexist? Or are you saying that it's just improbable that God and suffering in the world both exist? Now, if he's or she is like most atheists, they don't have a clue as to which one they're saying. So then you help that atheist clarify their view by explaining these two versions of the problem. And then you ask them, which one do you believe? Is it logical that it could happen, or is it improbable? And then what they believe determines how you respond. So we've talked about the logical side. Now let's talk about the evidential version. So the evidential version, okay, the atheist is claiming that the following ultimately two statements, when we talked about the, the one main problem of logical, okay, and we've, I, I think we've, at least at this point, gone through enough uh, back and forth to, to give you some response, okay? Now, we jump to the evidential problem. Let me just say this, by the way, real quick, about the logical problem, and I'm pleased to be able to report this to you. <clears throat> After centuries of discussion, the books on the logical version of the problem have been completely closed, and it's widely admitted both by atheists and theist philosophers that the theological problem of suffering has failed. So the burden of proof that it lays on the atheist's shoulders has been too heavy, and atheists have not been able to come up with enough. So I say all that to say, on the left side, the logical side, you, you don't find as many that are there. It, it, but that doesn't mean we're out of the woods now, because we come to the evidential problem, which is still very much a live issue today. So here's what the atheist claims, that the suffering in the world renders it improbable that God exists. Now, it seems highly improbable that God could have reasons for permitting suffering in the world. So much of the suffering in the world just seems to be pointless. It seems to be unnecessarily. Surely God could have reduced the suffering in the world without reducing the world's overall goodness. So they're going to say the suffering in the world provides evidence there's no God. Can we just admit that that's a much more powerful version of the problem of evil? And the reason, namely, is because it's, it's improbable that God exists... So the atheist burden of proof is much lighter. They don't have to shoulder such a heavy burden of proof in regard to the evidential problem. So I'm going to give you how we can respond to the evidential problem. All right, I'm going to make three points, okay? Here's point number one. We're not in a position to say that it's improbable that God lacks good reasons for permitting suffering in the world. So the key... So the evidential argument is that the atheists claim that God doesn't have good reasons for permitting the suffering of the world. And I think we all recognize that much of the suffering in the world looks unjustified. I think we all would agree with that. We see neither its point. We see a lot of times its necessity. And the success of the atheist argument would depend on whether we are warranted in inferring that because the suffering looks unjustified, therefore it really is unjustified. And that's the key move, by the way, in the atheist argument. That's the key move. And my first point is that we are just not in a good position to assess that kind of probability with any kind of confidence. Why? Because we are finite persons where we are very limited in our intelligence. We are very limited in insight. We are very limited in space and time. If you saw the new images released by NASA this week, you had an overwhelming feeling of this incredible experience of I literally am so small. And that incredible shrinking feeling has a way of opening us up again to the wonder that has essentially been sapped in our 21st century context where people are so disenchanted, right? 
What do we mean? In order to arrive at the ultimate ends, God may well have to put up. God sees the end of history from the beginning and he providentially orders history to arrive at his ends. Watch this, through people's free decisions and actions. In order to arrive at his ultimate ends, God may have to put up with a great deal of suffering along the way. Suffering which in our perspective seems very pointless, seems unnecessary. But it might be seen to be justly permitted with God, within God's wider framework. So let me give you two illustrations to kind of point this out. One's from contemporary science and one's from uh, pop culture. All right, so first illustration in so-called chaos theory. Anybody familiar with this in science? All right, so in chaos theory, scientists have discovered that certain large-scale systems like weather systems or insect populations, they're extremely sensitive to even the tiniest disturbances. So a butterfly can flutter its wings in, on a twig in the jungles of West Africa and it can set in force a motion that eventually perpetuates, eventuates in a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. And yet it's impossible, in principle, for anyone observing that little butterfly shaking its wings on the branch to be able to predict such an outcome. We simply have no way of knowing how the alteration of something very seemingly insignificant can actually radically alter the entire world. That's called chaos theory. Let's look at the pop culture. So there's a movie came out years ago called Sliding Doors. Gwyneth Paltrow. It stars Gwyneth Paltrow. And she tells the story. This book, this, this is a book, movie, uh, becomes a movie. Tells the story of a young woman who's... Anybody seen this, by the way? All right. <clears throat> so I'm going to have to explain it. So this woman is rushing down the stairs to catch a subway train. And as she nears the train the movie splits into two paths that her life might take. And in the one life, the doors to the train slide shut just before she can board the subway. And in the other life, she manages to get through the door before they close. And based on the seemingly trivial event of closing doors or opening doors, the two paths of her life increasingly diverge over time. And in the one life, she's enormously successful and happy. And in the other life, she encounters failure and unhappiness and all because of a split difference in getting through the sliding doors of a subway train. Moreover, the difference depends on whether a little girl that's playing with her dolly on the railing of the stairway is snatched away by her father or whether she momentarily blocks the young woman's path as she's rushing down to catch the train. And as you watch the movie, you can't help but wonder about the innumerable other trivialities that are going and whether or not her foot lands on the step fast enough or it doesn't land on the step fast enough that lead up to that vent. Whether that father and his daughter were delayed, perhaps leaving the house that morning because the little girl didn't like the breakfast cereal that her mother poured for that day. Or whether the man had been inattentive to his daughter that morning because his thoughts were preoccupied by something he read in the newspaper. Or because he quarreled with his wife that morning. And the trivialities of the whole movie just begin to multiply until you see that the ramifications of every small little triviality is incalculable. But the most interesting part of the film is the ending. And in the end... The happy, successful life, the young woman is suddenly killed in an automobile accident. While in the other life, filled with misery and unhappiness, her life turns around and it turns out in the end that the life of hardship and suffering 
was the truly good life after all. Now here's the point. My point isn't that things always turn out for the best. What I'm saying is much more modest. Here's what I'm saying. What I'm trying to communicate is that given the dizzying complexity of life, we are in no position to judge that God has no sufficient reason for permitting suffering in some instances or not in other instances. We're just in no way to judge that. Every event that occurs sends a ripple effect through history such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting it to happen might not emerge until centuries later. Maybe in another country. Now, if we here approach that problem this way, only an all-knowing God could grasp the complexities of directing a world of free people towards His provision goals. We have no idea of how the suffering that might be involved in order for God to achieve some intended purpose through the freely chosen actions of other human persons. Nor should we ever expect to discern God's reasons for permitting suffering. And therefore, it's hardly surprising that much of the suffering in the world appears what to us? Pointless. Appears pointless. Because we are overwhelmed by what? Complexity. Complexity. Here's the second thing I want to say to the evidential version. Is relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is probable. That shouldn't be improbable. I typed that incorrectly. It's probable. So relative to the scope of the evidence, the full evidence, God's existence is probable. Now let me explain this to you. What's important to recall here, and I want you to see this. You ready? Probabilities are always relative to background information. So let me give you an example. It'll make sense. Suppose that I stood up before you today and I said, Joe is a college student and we're given the background information that 90% of college students drink beer. Okay, now relative to that background information, it makes it highly probable that Joe is a beer drinker because he's a college student and 90% of college students drink beer. But then suppose we're given more additional information that Joe is a student at Wheaton College and that 90% of the students at Wheaton College do not drink beer. Now suddenly, relative to the new background information, it's highly probable that Joe is not a beer drinker. So probabilities are only relative to the background information that's actually being considered. So the atheist, watch this, this you're going to like this. This is, this, 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 this is, is kind of like my, I'm a pistol shooter when I'm in these conversations, okay? So the atheist says God's existence is improbable. When you hear that, you should immediately ask yourself, Improbable relative to what? You get what's the background information? The suffering in the world? Well, if that's only the background information you consider, then it's hardly unlikely or surprising that God's existence would appear improbable relative to that alone. But that's not the real question, is it? The real interesting question is whether God's existence is probable relative to the full scope of the evidence. So I can't take the one background information called the problem of evil and then go to a probability of God's existence off of one part. 
I have to look at it with the full scope of the evidence of God. And I'm persuaded, listen, I'm persuaded that whatever improbability, right, that suffering may throw upon God's existence, it's simply totally, actually, outweighed by the arguments of, for the existence of God, which we could talk about from now until December. Okay? So let's just consider this moral argument for a moment. Watch this. Much of the suffering in the world um, consists of moral evil. So evil acts that people freely perpetuate on one another. This is different than natural evil. Okay? Natural evil we're not talking about here. We're talking about moral evil. Okay? So watch this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Number two, evil exists. Therefore, objective moral values exist. That is, some things are really evil. Number four, therefore God exists. So there, there is actually an argument for God from the existence of evil. Right? So at one level, evil calls into question God's existence, but at a deeper level, it actually proves God's existence because in the absence of God, suffering is not bad. If there is no God, suffering's not that bad. We have nothing to compare suffering to, evil to. So what you need to understand is that most people who press the problem of suffering in the world, they're just assuming that there are no good arguments for God's existence. That's just simply not. It's not true at all. Here's the third thing I want to say. The Christian faith entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and suffering. So all of basically other biblical doctrines already espouse a view where suffering and God both simultaneously exist. That is to say, if the Christian God exists, then it's not improbable that suffering should also exist. Let me just say it this way. It actually turns out that the problem of suffering is easier to deal with given the Christian concept of God rather than some other bare-bone concept of God. Because for Christianity... Christianity entails certain doctrines which increase the probability of suffering. Christianity's worldview increases the probability of suffering. Let me give you just four. We could give you a lot of doctrines. Let me give you four of them. Here's the first doctrine. The chief purpose of life is not happiness, but rather the knowledge of God. That's a Christian doctrine. So one of the reasons that the problem of suffering seems so difficult to us is that people just tend to naturally assume that if God exists, then his goal for human life is what? Happiness. God, if, God's, if he's there, of course, happiness has to be his intent. Well, God's role is to provide a comfortable environment for human pets. But on the Christian view, is this true or false? It's false. We're not God's pets, are we? And the purpose of life is not happiness, but rather the knowledge of God, which in end will produce ultimate happiness and fulfillment. But much of the suffering in the world, friends, may be utterly pointless with respect to the end of producing happiness in this life. But it may not be pointless with respect to producing a deeper knowledge of God. Are you with me? So innocent human suffering provides an occasion for a deeper dependency on God, a deeper trust in God, either on the part of the person who suffers or the part of the people that are around the person who suffers. And of course, whether God's purpose is achieved through what we suffer all depends on how we respond. 
to what we're suffering? Do we respond with anger and bitterness towards God, right? Or do we turn to him in faith or strength and power to endure? And because God's ultimate goal for humanity is the knowledge of himself, which ultimately alone can bring happiness to people, history cannot be seen in its true perspective apart from the kingdom of God. So the purpose of human life is the kingdom of God for the Christian. And it may well be the case that suffering is part of the means by which God draws people freely into his kingdom. I don't have the time tonight because I want to give plenty of space here in just a little bit for Q&A. But I could go through one after the other. For instance, China. It was estimated that 20 million Chinese people lost their life in Mao's cultural revolution. Christians stood firm in what was probably the most widespread, harshest persecution the church has ever experienced. And that persecuted church purified and, and strengthened the church. And since 1977, the growth of the church in China has no parallels in all of history. So researchers estimate that there were between 30 to 75 million Christians by 1990. Then in 2000, there were between 90 and 100 million Christians in China. And now there are over 500 millions. And Mao Tse-sung unwittingly became the greatest evangelist in history because of his persecution of the church. Are you with me? That's, that's the Christian worldview. That's God using human evil and suffering to advance his cause, to advance his purpose. El Salvador, 12-year civil war, earthquakes, collapse of the price of coffee, nation's main export, impoverished the nation. Over 80% live in dire poverty. An astonishing spiritual harvest came out of that that gathered from all strata of society in the midst of all the hate and bitterness. In 1960, evangelicals were 2.3% of the population, but today they're almost like 32 or 34% of the population. We could go to Ethiopia. We could go for instance after instance after instance where there are clear reasons how God has used this suffering. Here's the third, second thing we'll say. Man, or second doctrine. Mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose. So rather than submitting to and worshiping God, people rebel against God. They go their own way. And so they find themselves spiritually alienated from God. They're morally guilty before God, and they're groping in spiritual darkness. They're pursuing false gods of their own making, right? And the terrible human evils that, evils that we see all around us, what are they? They're testimony to man's depravity in the midst of our world, right? And our Bible, listen, on the contrary, actually expects that to happen. The Bible says that God doesn't intervene to stop human depravity. He has given the world up to the sin that it chooses. And he's going to let human depravity run its course. Why? Because that only serves to heighten mankind's moral responsibility before God and their wickedness and our need of moral cleansing and forgiveness. So God's not going to stop that. Our actual Christian doctrine says or gives account for that. Are you with me? Here's the third doctrine. God's purpose is not restricted to this life only. It spills over into eternal life. So according to the Christian faith, this life is not all there is, right? This life is like the cramped and narrow foyer that opens up into the great banquet hall of God's eternity. And God promises eternal life to all of those who place what? Faith in Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. So when God asks his children to bear terrible suffering in this life, it's only with the prospect of a heavenly reward and a recompense and a recomp uh, God paying us back in a way that's literally beyond comprehension. 
The Apostle Paul, when you think about it, lived a life of incredible suffering and hardship, did he not? He had afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labor, watching, hunger. And yet he writes these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul lived his entire life in this perspective of eternity. And he understood that the length of this life being as finite as is literally so small compared to the span of eternal life that we shall enjoy with God in heaven. And listen to me, the more time we spend in eternity, the more the sufferings of this life shrink by comparison to literally a small moment. And that's why Paul calls them what? A brief, momentary affliction. Why? Because they're literally going to be overwhelmed by an ocean of divine joy and eternal life that God bestows upon his children in heaven. And listen, friends, it might be the case that there is suffering in the world which serves no earthly purpose whatsoever, that's entirely pointless from a human point of view, but which God permits simply that he might overwhelmingly reward in the afterlife those who've undergone such suffering and still put their confidence and faith in God. He might be going for our jaw on the floor for eternity. Here's the fourth doctrine we believe. The knowledge of God is an incomparable good. It's incomparable. The passage I just recited from Paul makes this point. Paul imagines it was like a scale, right, where one side are placed all the sufferings of this life and on the other side is placed the glory that God will bestow on his children. And Paul says the weight of glory is so great that the sufferings of this life, right, aren't worthy to be compared to it. Why? Because to know God is God, the source of infinite goodness and love, listen, is an incomparable good. It's the fulfillment of human existence. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, what? That you know God. Knowledge of God is the highest. So the person who knows God, no matter what we suffer, no matter how awful the pain, can still say God is good to me. Why? Simply in fact, or in virtue, I should say, of the fact that he knows God, which is an incomparable good. Now watch this. Those four doctrines, Christian doctrines, by the way, those aren't atheist doctrines, those aren't Hindu doctrines, Buddhist doctrines, these are Christian doctrines. What do they do? They all greatly increase the probability of the coexistence of God in suffering. And they thereby, in turn, decrease any probability that suffering might be thought to throw upon the existence of God. So it seems to me, if I can kind of summarize, the evidential problem of suffering is no more successful than the logical version of the problem of suffering. Because it requires probability judgments which are simply beyond our ability to make. And it fails to take into account the full scope of the evidence of God. And finally, it's going to be diminished in force when it comes to the Christian God. So let me take a few moments and 
spend before we jump into our questions about expressing to you something that I shared several years back, but I think it's appropriate for us to re-engage. And that is this idea and phrase that we often have appealed to as Christians. I have, you have. And that phrase is, and you'll turn on Facebook, you're going to see it at least once a day from a Christian. God is in control. So let's talk for a moment about what do we mean God is in control. Let me just go ahead and say from the outset, if you don't know this, I, I, hope, I hope we don't ever say that again. What we want to say instead of God is in control is we want to say God is sovereign. God's sovereignty, friends, is not like control at all. So it's not true that God is at the mercy of what's happening in the world. God is not surprised. God is not threatened. God is not kept from being God by anything that happens in the world. He's not out of control, but he's also not in control. He's sovereign. Now watch this. You're going to track with me for a moment. His relationship to the world is unlike anything else's relationship to the world. So what is control? Control would be able to act in a way that would make the other thing not what it is on its own. So when you have control, watch this, you are not free. If I control Stacy, okay, then she's not doing what she wants. She's doing what I want. That's what control is. But God is sovereignly creative. That is different than control altogether, which means what he does is he creates my freedom. God creates my freedom. So I'm going to get a little bit lectury for a moment, but I'm going to get loud and shout as well. Okay, you're going to make it. So just follow me. Control, watch this, takes your freedom away from you, but creativity and sovereignty does not impede your freedom at all. And yet God is still God. And we do not want to say God is in control because if God is in control, then nothing that is happening is really happening. God is making it happen. So if I say God is in control, nothing around us is actually happening. It's God making it happen. So when we talk about our salvation, I do not want to say God made me get saved. Why not? Because then it's not my salvation. It's just something God's forcing me to do. I'm just a puppet in God's hands But I also don't want to say that I'm saving myself. So what do I mean when I say I'm saved by grace? Here's what I mean. I mean that it's freely God and freely me. It's not 50% God and then God waiting on me to do my 50%. It's not God taking me to the last mile of my journey and saying, okay, you walk the rest. Salvation, watch this, is 100% God and 100% me because God's relationship to me is creative and sovereign. It's not controlling and it's also not Control, it's not controlling me, and it's also not controlling it. So it's unlike control completely. It's a kind of relationship that only God can have with us. And you say, Craig, is this good news? Because oftentimes we don't think it's good news. Listen, if God is in control, then God is directly responsible for all the evil that happens in this world. So if I put on my Facebook, God is in control, then God calls every evil that transpired today to happen. Okay, let me give you an example. When, when Kevin Carter, who was an award-winning photographer in the 1980s and 90s, he was taking pics in Africa in Civil War in the 1993. He took a picture, and I showed it before in our church, of this starving Sudanese girl, and she's emaciated with her face down, and there's a, a vulture behind her waiting to devour her. As soon as she dies, the vulture's ready to eat her flesh. 
He wins the Pulitzer Prize. The rest of his life, he talks about how this moment horrifies him. And whether we realize it or not, when we say God is in control, all right, we have a sense that God is an agent in the world that could control what happens, but sometimes doesn't. God is like this photographer. God is seeing it, and sometimes he rushes in and takes the child and shoes the vulture away, and other times he stands back and he lets the vulture eat the child. And when you talk about the control, if you say God's in control, that's the only place this can lead. God is able to, but he doesn't do anything about it, or God is able and he doesn't. But both are unfaithful ways of talking about God. So I want you to hear me very, very carefully. It's not that God is not in control. It's not that God is at the mercy, so to speak, of what is happening. But God is not in control in that way. He is not there, right, and able to do something, but doesn't do it because he has some other plan. God is sovereign, which is altogether something different. So I heard a sermon one time. I was about 25, and the title was, Can I Trust God? And the point was yes, but it was the reasoning that was troubling. And the, the, the sermon was, you can't, you can trust God as a believer because God is in control. And the image he used in this sermon, I don't remember all the logistics, but was the image he used for the sermon was Disney World. He said, you go to Disney World and you're dying of a heat stroke, you're waiting in line, you're paying $22 for a Dasani water. But he said, hidden from your view is a control center, it's like underneath the concrete. And they're watching you on cameras and they're making sure all of the rides are working and having a good time and the lines are not too long. And he said, that's just like God. And I wanted to stand up and say, no, it is not. It's not anything like God. Life is not Disney World when there are starving babies with vultures waiting to eat them. It's not Disney World when people are dying in tragedy and civil war. It's not God pushing a button in a control room. That's wicked. And we also have to get rid of this notion of God being in control because if we don't, what we do is speak death to everyone around us while we're trying to speak life and we're trying to have faith God is going to act on our behalf and we think God's in control. So if you've ever had this experience, I can remember so many times in my life praying for God to heal someone and it not happening. And what I feel on the inside is anger. Why? I've seen you do this before, God. Why not now? But that anger, friends is because of a misunderstanding of the promises of God. The anger is rooted in a disappointment because God is not running the world like a Disney park pushing buttons and watching us on the screen. It's much more beautiful than that, much more mysterious, much more difficult to comprehend, and much more hopeful than that. Like several years ago, I did the funeral of a 16-year-old girl whose body was racked with terminal cancer. And her mother got up on the past, the last walk, and she was grabbing that girl, trying to lift her out of the... I was trying to remain straight-faced at the casket head, and she's lifting her body, saying, I'm going to take you home with me, and you're going you're to sleep with me in my bed. Now, now do I want to say to that mama right there, God is in control, God has a plan? No. When you walk into a pediatric care unit, do you want to say to those parents, when I was in Africa a few years ago, kids that are dying of cancer and anemia no care in a pediatric ward do I want to say God is in control when you walk into a war zone in Syria do you want to look at those people and say God's in control no what you want to say is God is sovereign what do we mean watch this we mean that God acts in this time but until the end of everything watch this 
God never does everything God can do. That's his sovereignty. Well, what do you mean? Think about this for a moment. God acts, but until the end of the coming of the Lord, God never acts fully. You know how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. That means that everything happens in this world now to everyone. God is active, but God's not doing everything that God can do yet. So God has acted, God is acting, but there's still more for God to do that hasn't been done yet. And we're living, this is what makes it weird, we're living between what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is yet to do. And that means that God hasn't been God yet fully, except in one person, Jesus Christ. The only place we've ever seen God do everything God can do is in Jesus And friends, that's what makes us Christian because we look at Jesus and we say, when our God does everything God can do, it looks like that. That's why we live by what? Faith, not when God does everything God can do, it looks like Jesus. But God has never done everything God can do for anyone else other than Jesus. He didn't even do it for the early church. They prayed in the book of Acts for things that Jesus told them they had authority over and they don't have authority over them. They pray for these signs shall accompany them to believe. You lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They lay hands on people that are sick and they don't recover. Well, what's the conundrum? What's the challenge? When our God does everything God can do, it looks like Jesus. It looks like a man born miraculously. He brings life and joy and hope and peace and comfort to everyone around him. He corrects and speaks truth. He corrects the wrong. He raises a child from the dead. He saves a woman from stoning who even when he dies, he passes out death on the other side into a whole new life. Because what? When God does everything God can do, it looks like Jesus' relationship to the Father. But that's only true for Jesus right now and not yet for us. Here's how the book of Hebrews says it. Quote Psalm 8 and he says, God, you have set all things beneath the feet of humanity. But we do not see that promise fulfilled yet. But we do see Jesus, Hebrews says, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And looking to Jesus, we move towards obedience. You know what it's telling us? What is God trying to tell us? God has done everything God can do for Jesus, but he's not yet done all he can do for you and for me. And that means I live by faith right now, and I don't live by sight. And until the end of all things, which is the consummation of all things, I live by faith and not sight. And that means I never see all that God is doing. Whether bad or good, there will be things that happen in my life and things that happen in your life that are unfortunate. And then there will be things that happen in our life that are evil. The unfortunate things you and I can deal with, but there will be some things that happen to you or have already happened to you that are evil and that are absolutely evil and demonic in origin and God is not doing that or allowing that. God is not through acting on that, which is entirely a different way of understanding that. God is going to make good of that situation because the scripture promises. So that evil thing that happened to you, God didn't do it to you, and God didn't stand back like a photographer and watch it happen. God is not through being God to you yet. And what it means to have faith is that you trust when God is done being God that every evil in my life will be completely made right. Not forgotten, not brushed over, not pretended to not happen. God will make it right. And if it doesn't happen, our hope is in vain. Listen to me, friends, listen. 
our hope is this. When God is through being God, everything will be right. But he's not through being God. If he was, if he was you wouldn't die. If God healed you every time you prayed for a sick body, you would just keep living. So God hasn't done all that God can do. This is why the characteristic prayer of the Old Testament is what? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And you know how it switches in the New Testament? It's not like, how long, O Lord? It's come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know why? Because the biblical writers have seen what Jesus started. We have seen what you have started to do. Now we want you to finish what you started because when you finish what you started, everyone around us on the earth will already know what we already know in faith. That you are good and you are faithful and you are awesome. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. I know you already started this stuff. So just come and finish what you started. But until then, what do we do? We have faith and not sight, which means we trust what our experience tells us is foolish. And that's the tension of our whole life. We trust what our experience is, is telling opposite. When you see with eyes of faith, you understand that what's happening to me is not what is actually true of me. There's a God acting mysteriously and will act in the future and that makes what seems to be happening to me untrue. So think about it this, y'all. When I, what I'm experiencing now is not the truth about me. What he's going to do will show the truth about me. And how much of Scripture points to this, y'all? We know this. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind what he has prepared for us. So we persevere trusting that when he does all he can do, then we will know what it means to say God is good. In my Pentecostal church, we had this tradition of saying God is good, and then everybody in the congregation would say all the time. And then we'd say all the time, and everybody would say... Now listen... That's a great statement, but there's a way of saying that unfaithfully. If we say that and we mean my life is going like I want it to, nothing evil is happening to me right now. When we say God is good, we don't mean, listen, listen to me. We, people say, oh, I got a promotion today. I see it on Facebook. God is good. It's a very unfaithful way to say that. When we say God is good, listen to me. We don't mean my life is going well. We mean it as a defiant act of faith. We mean no matter what is happening in our world, no matter what babies are being aborted, no matter what babies are dying in killing fields, no matter what Christians are being martyred, we believe God is a good God. And when God is through being God, everyone will know in sight what everyone we know in faith, that God is good and God is wise and God is just in all his ways. So God is good is not a, a precursor or a, a response to something good happened in your life that day. It's a defiant act of faith that says, I'm going to constantly believe what my experience is not telling me right now my experience is lying to me and when God does all that God can do everyone will see in sight what I already know in faith and that he is completely just and awesome in all his ways so when we say God is good it's a defiant act it's a defiant act to say no God you are and until then we keep disputing our experience with faithful claims and our experience keeps telling us something different and we keep saying what God has said. And our experiences, I'll be honest with you, can I just say it in church? Our experiences sometimes seem to challenge the Lordship of Jesus. Like we stand bed of a, you know, the bedside of a sick person and say God's able to heal you. And if God heals you, we will rejoice and we will say God is good. But that's not all God can do. You think physical healing is all God can do? 
You want to encourage somebody who's sick? Say, hey, we'll pray for you, but if God heals you, that's not all God can do. That's just the tip. Have we gotten so bound in sin that we think God's alleviation of sin is the best that he can do? The alleviation of suffering is the best that God is? No. God's so much better than that. And if you don't get well and you die, we will stand right next to your grave and we will say God is not through being God and when he's through being God, death's going to be defeated and sin will be defeated. He'll wipe up every tear and make every wrong right and we'll know the joy of the Lord and God will cause that body to bust up out of the grave and receive a resurrected, glorified body. And that's what we're hoping for and nothing less than that. So we're waiting on God to finish what he started. That's what we are as Christians. And we're trusting that that is coming. So for most of the history of the church, friends, and I'll end right here, theologians insisted Jesus did not live by faith. He lived, listen, in the fullness of love because everything Jesus did, he did in full communion with the Father. So when we read the Gospels, does Jesus ever struggle with whether God will act when he prays? Now, now follow with me for a moment. Did Jesus, anywhere in the Gospels did Jesus pray and God not act on the prayer? No. But when you and I, we know what it's like to pray prayers that don't seem to get answered because we do live by faith. Jesus did not live by faith. He lived by love. He lived in full communion with the Father. But there's a purpose of God in this. And this is the text I'll end with. Romans chapter 5. This is powerful. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Isn't it strange how often the New Testament apostles boast in sufferings? Paul says you've been graced to suffer. But in so much of what I've known about Christianity, the whole point of grace is to not have to suffer. So I inherited a a Christianity that said grace was you don't suffer. The New Testament says you have to be given grace to suffer. You are graced in suffering. And yet there are claims in the New Testament that God can do anything, and yet suffering is at the center of your life. In fact, watch this, Paul can even say this life is present suffering. So the the way Paul summarizes what it means to be a human short of Jesus Christ coming is present suffering. And God is not going to save us. Watch this, God is not going to save us from that because God is saving us in that. Did you hear me? God's not going to save us from that suffering because he's saving us in that suffering. That's how our salvation takes place. Let me show you this. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. No, then our suffering produces what? Endurance. Can I just say with you real quick, any form of Christianity that does not train you in patience and endurance is not true Christianity. 
And there are some forms of the faith that believe you don't need to have patience because if you have enough faith, then whatever you're struggling with, if you know how to get in touch with God, it'll be over and you can get out of it. You don't have to have that difficult conversation. Just pray and God will change their heart. No, you have to have that difficult conversation. And sometimes there are ways in which the Holy Spirit intervenes like this. But to expect that every time, all the time, you'll never suffer. You'll never learn patience. And notice this, verse 4, the only way in which Christ's character is going to be performed and perfected and formed in me is as the Lord lets me live in the midst of endurance. There is no other way for the character of God to be formed in a believer. Listen to me. I am a believer in the supernatural. I am a spirit-filled man of God. In the presence of God, things happen. Altar calls are amazing. Deaf ears can be open. Uh, hardened hearts can be softened, but that's never where character is formed. A lot of things can happen in the altar, but godly character cannot happen in an altar. I cannot lay hands on somebody and they get godly character. They have to suffer. They have to live through the endurance. And it's in the endurance that God causes our salvation to spring forth. So a lot of things can happen in the Christian life through prayer. Character's not one of them. It's not one of them. We will never learn to love our enemies by people laying hands on us. We have to be in relationship with another brother who hates us and we have to keep loving him and not jumping churches and connect groups and every other group to get away from the difficult challenge of the relationship in our life. Or else I'll never grow. Are you with me? I'll never be who God's called me to be. I can't learn to love my enemies by being praying and asking God to deliver me from my enemies. I have to be in a relationship with an enemy and I have to love them. Only way we can love our enemies is to have our enemies mistreat us over and over and over again. And then we learn how in the grace of God to respond like Jesus to them. There's no other way for character to be formed. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God entrusts us with that. He creates us with freedom and entrusts us to become more like his son in our own encounter with these people. Look at that. He will not rescue us from these responsibilities. He gives them to us. So think of it like this. When God breaks into your life, He pours His own life into you. But the only thing that activates the love of God in your life is the experience of suffering. He does not send the suffering. He's not controlling it or manipulating you. But the only thing that you can experience that will trigger in you the character of God and enable you to step into the fullness of what Jesus' purpose is for you is the experience Jesus had of suffering. Jesus is known as the man of sorrows. So to live a godly life means it's going to lead to suffering. And I want to say this to you, friends. I know it's hard to hear. But the godlier you are, the more suffering you will have to endure. Because at some point, it's not just about your suffering anymore. You will be, by the love of God, a person who takes on suffering all around you. And the more godly you grow, the more you suffer. Because it's no longer just about me. It's about the heaviness and the weightiness. So even if all is great in my life, the person right down the street is suffering like I can't imagine. And because the character of God's formed in me, their problems keep me up at night. 
Why? Because I recognize that's why I'm in the world. That's why God put his spirit in me. Oh yeah, God baptizes you in the spirit to pray in the language. But the reason God baptizes you in the spirit is so you can take on the sufferings of brothers and sisters around you. And be able to be sustained in the midst of it. And you're crying tears. They don't, know they, ha- they don't even know how to cry. And it's through you offering them bread and not rocks. And the more like Christ you become, the more burdens you take on. Because the more you recognize, man, that's my problem. And so what God is waiting on us to do is to become more responsible. There's a false misunderstanding of our faith that said God has done all that can be done. Just trust it. As if the goal of the Christian life is to be irresponsible. Yeah. We've been trained. Look at the problem of the world. We wave our hand at it. We speak some vague blessing. But First John says if you see someone in need and you wave your hand at them and say be blessed and be filled and you don't give them food, the love of God's not in you. Because when the love of God's in you, when you see the suffering of the world, that becomes your suffering and you have to step into it. And you begin to cry, how long, O Lord? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And you're taking on what? Christ-like character. Christ-like character. This is what it means to operate in a world full of evil and suffering. 